Getting ready to take on spring? Make your first move with the reliable performance and power of steel tools. From hedge trimmers and mowers to string trimmers and more, right now you can save $20 on the steel MS-162 or MS-170 chainsaw. Real steel. Offer valid through June 30th, 2024. See participating retailer for details. Live from the 6th and Peabody studio and across the OutKick network, this is OutKick 360 with Jonathan Hutton, Chad Withrow, and Paul Kuharski. Glad you're with us across the OutKick network. OutKick 360 rolls on. Coming up in 20 minutes, Armando Salguero will join us. And in the third hour of today's program, we have Scott Dixon coming in studio. IndyCar driver, a six-time champion, and second all-time in IndyCar wins and victories. He'll be in studio with us to, to discuss the Music City Grand Prix, among other things. Uh, and Amy Dash will join us in just a moment with the very latest on all of the legal expertise that we can find in regards to what the NFL offseason is. I think that's why I'm, <laughs> I'm all for preseason games. To actually get to see the product from other uh, on television instead of just coverage of, uh, of appeals and um, and injunctions and anything else that's that's headed our way, we do know that Goodell has appointed someone to hear the appeal on the uh, on behalf of the league and uh, the NFL PA and 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 Deshaun Watson's camp, and it will be a former New Jersey Attorney General Peter Harvey is uh, who he has appointed, who has a, a big legal background. I'm surprised. I thought it would be somebody from inside the league office. Per Schefter, Peter C. Harvey served as the Attorney General of New Jersey and is now a partner at Patterson Belknap. Uh, even I know the name of that firm in New York. He's also served as a federal prosecutor. He has deep expertise in criminal law, including domestic violence and sexual assault. So he's found himself somebody with expertise in the field. The question will be, is this guy aligned with what the league has declared it seeks? I feel like he'd get a bit of a heads up from that guy before appointing him that they're yeah. somewhat aligned on what should happen to Deshaun Watson. Maybe we'll I'm ask, wrong. We'll ask Amy Dash. Well, well, Amy Dash joins us. She's the founder of League of Justice. Uh, Odyssey legal analyst, uh, nice enough to join us on the show again. Amy, hope you're doing well. I'm doing great. How are you guys? Very well. Thank you. What are the odds that Roger Goodell finds himself a designee who is not aligned, at least in principle, with what the league is seeking here, penalty, adjusted penalty-wise? Well, I think the league is in a tough position because if the league tries to influence its so-called independent designee, a lot of that stuff usually leaks. But I think the NFL wants to be in a position where it's heroically trying to push for this longer one-year suspension. And then maybe somebody else, not Roger Goodell, takes the heat and comes up with some sort of a compromise. What that will do is that will serve to deter the NFLPA and Deshaun Watson from taking this to federal court, or at least trying to, even though I don't believe they have a strong case if they do. But so I think it may end up somewhere in the 8 to 12 game range which would be a compromise, and Roger Goodell would not be to blame for that because he's obviously handing it off to somebody who's so-called independent. 
Amy, I know that if I found some of the wording in Sue L. Robinson's judgment to be interesting, someone with your background certainly found some of it interesting, the way she carefully worded different things in that 16-page document. So let's go back a bit. What did you make of the 16-page document, and what jumped out most to you? To me, she was laying a groundwork for the NFL to come in and really make this punishment whatever it thinks it should be. I assumed Roger would take the appeal. Um, I knew the NFL would appeal. I'm not surprised he handed it off. But Roger taking that appeal and making that decision is just an easy avenue for the league to get that one year that it thinks is fair and just. Uh, But, you know, she absolutely declared the NFL the victor here, at least in terms of her findings and her factual findings are what the lengthier suspension, if there is one, will be based on. So this person who this is appealed to cannot go in and find things that she didn't find, can't disagree with the number of violations, for example, that she found. So she found almost 12 violations So that was three different categories of the PCP, sexual assault on on four women, conduct detrimental to the integrity of the game with the four cases. Um, And so and then also uh, putting these women in genuine danger for their safety and well-being. So that's four times three different violations. That's 12. Everybody's shocked that somebody could find that the NFL met its burden to prove that more likely than not, he committed sexual assault on four people, plus these other violations, and come up with only a six-game suspension and sort of chalk it up to this uh, distinction that's not even really in the PCP, that there was no force. If you look at the personal conduct policy, it says that there's a six-game minimum for a sexual assault with physical force. For her to make the determination that there was no physical force, you know, that is really subjective unilateral and took a lot of people by surprise because she's basically saying that she didn't feel that when somebody forcefully puts their genitals on someone else and she acknowledged it was unwanted contact, uh, when somebody releases their bodily fluids on somebody else, that this is not, this does not have a level of, forget about violence, but physical force to it. And it definitely does have physical contact. So I think, you know, it's very controversial what she found. And I really believe that she was just out of her element and setting the stage for someone else to do the dirty work here and increase the suspension. Or if you want to look at it from the flip side, someone to come in and be the hero and increase the suspension. Odyssey Legal Insider Amy Dash with us. You can follow her on social media at amy-tv. Did you say you think the league would prevail in a legal challenge to whatever it does here? And if so, is that just because uh, a judge is going to say, this is what the CBA says and you guys agreed to the CBA? Yes and no. So yes, you're absolutely right because courts don't want to overturn collectively bargained for negotiated processes, especially not ones that were just renegotiated. So think about the players that failed in the past, Tom Brady, Ezekiel Elliott. That was with archaic procedures and processes that were more unfair than the newly negotiated one. So just on that basis alone, I think the NFLPA would be laughed out of court, but there's also a legal standard. You cannot just challenge a court arbitration. You have to have a legal grounds for doing that. And an attorney can't bring a frivolous suit. 
So typically, an arbitration will only be overturned if there's an egregious level of unfairness. Now, the NFLPA issued a statement the night before the ruling came out praising the fairness and the thoroughness of this impartial arbitrator, which it helped to choose, um, and of this new process, which it just agreed to, and sort of honoring the legitimacy of it and asking the NFL not to exercise its appeal right. So because it already put in writing that, hey, we believe this was fair, I just don't see a legal groundwork for appealing this at all to a federal court. And I don't see, you know, any reason why a court would get into the the game of of deciding whether one year versus six games is more appropriate, because that's just not what they do in these types of cases. Amy, it sounds like you're um, it sounds like based on what you're saying, the best case scenario that Watson's looking at is like a 12 game suspension with a fine. Um, if even if it's less than that, let us know. But if that's the case, why would why wouldn't the NFL go for the indefinite suspension come over the top by setting a new precedent, which Sue L. Robinson referenced uh, her judgment was based on if you're if you're likely going to win uh, any lawsuit that you face and you're not anticipating any injunction coming down to allow Watson to play why not throw everything in a suspension and tell him you know have at it with anything you want to try to do but you're on the sideline well, that's what they're pushing for, but they're in a difficult position because people are on to them. People understand that the NFL ultimately controls this process. It's a private corporation. They can create a judicial and a police arm, but the fact of the matter is they're behind all of it, right? So um, yes, he's Roger Goodell's giving this over to the designee. It, it just depends. And, and by the way, the NFL is pushing for that one year with the indefinite as they always have. That's the appearance that they're giving. It depends how much they want to pull those puppet strings behind the scenes and get involved because now they're under a lot of uh, pushback from the public saying, well, if you're going to decide this anyway, we're not fooled by your independent, impartial person, you know, deciding this to begin with. What's the point of her if you're just going to go and overrule her? So they're hearing a lot of that criticism. And I do believe that what ultimately happens is based on public opinion, is based on what's good for the bottom line. So I think they're going to have to decide how much they want to try to influence this uh, designee of Roger Goodell or let the person fall somewhere in the middle, I think, like eight to 12 games. Will you take us through a timeline of what a what a federal appeal would look like for Watson's team? We saw it from Brady and what it takes to receive an injunction that Brady received and allowed it allowed him to play. Now, ultimately, he did not win the appeal and he did not take it to the next level um, on appeal. But what what steps in this process are now ahead for Watson if, in fact, he wants to continue down this litigation? So, first of all, the reason he would continue down the litigation is if there's a year, I think, plus an indefinite suspension. So he doesn't have a guarantee that he would be able to come back after that year. I think if he just gets a pure year, he would be smart to just accept that. But if he moves forward to a federal court and he challenges it, uh, he has to meet to get a stay in an injunction, which means they stop the discipline from being meted out immediately. There's a hold on it so he can play while the court decides whether the outcome was fair. He would have to uh, prove that he had a high likelihood of succeeding and winning on the merits of his claims. That's going to be extremely difficult to do because there's not a fairness issue here again. Um, and also that he would be irreparably harmed. 
we're not seeing that at least from a financial perspective because his contract has, you know, I think 1 million the first year. So he would actually be more harmed. And this is what I would argue if I were on the other side of the court process delaying and then he loses and then he goes and loses uh, in the year that he's set to be paid $46 million because he's suspended in the second year. What players have argued in the past and what he could possibly argue is that um, if he misses out on these games, because remember, he already missed out on a season um, that he will lose in terms of statistics, in terms of accomplishments on the field, in terms of being eligible for, uh, you know, Pro Bowl and awards and things like that, Super Bowls, what have you. Um, So I think that's where he can try to make the argument. But remember, that argument has failed on multiple occasions with other players. Wondering how you react to this this piece in their announcement of the designee, the NFL um, is also saying the appeal addresses whether the discipline should be modified to include a professional evaluation and treatment as determined by medical experts in addition to revising the 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 punishment, the suspension. Um, what are your thoughts about that element of it, which the league seems concerned with that he's admitted no wrongdoing and they wonder if there shouldn't be some, some therapy or something like that? Well, that's actually pretty common to all of the discipline cases. In fact, in the majority of the discipline cases, there is uh, usually an acceptance of responsibility and with that accountability, a promise to rehabilitate to go to treatment that's not designated by the league, but also overseen by the league. And so it's surprising that the arbitrator would sort of put this provision in her ruling where she essentially wants Deshaun Watson babysat and wants his massages to be supervised by the club and then didn't say that he should try to get any type of treatment to examine whether there's an underlying problem there. So if the league feels that there is, and listen, obviously they feel that there is because They categorized him as a sexual predator who used his NFL status to try to intentionally, you know, get people to a massage room for a sexual purpose. And it's surprising to me that the league, you know, who would categorize a player like that would still give that player an opportunity to play in the league, especially after finding by a judge that it was more probable than not that he committed sexual assault against four people and was accused by more than two dozen people. So, you know, the NFL sort of has to figure that out, but I know a lot of people were pushing for more in the punishment. It just was six games. It fell flat for a lot of people and people want to see a fine. They want to see a lengthier suspension and they want to see a commitment to rehab. And we just haven't seen any remorse because remember Deshaun Watson is still claiming that he's fully innocent and has not done anything wrong. He's sorry for the impact of the whole circus on the community and the teams and his teammates, but he has not acknowledged that he did anything wrong. He still believes and proclaims that he didn't. What do you think from a legal perspective about the Brown statement when the six-game suspension came down from Sue L. Robinson? Because you hit on something there, Amy. He's yet to admit to any wrongdoing. He's denying all the allegations that he did that he did anything wrong. And then the Browns come out and they word it in a way that he's remorseful about the situation and they apologize for those triggered by the situation. It felt like something that was carefully crafted alongside Deshaun Watson's legal team from the Browns. What did you think? 
Well, I think the Browns are in a really tough position and they have to do whatever they can to try to mitigate those damages, especially on the PR front, because when they held their press conference, they really expressed a lot of faith in Deshaun Watson. Um, and they they exclaimed that they had thoroughly vetted this guy and they believed, you know, that he was the right person for that organization, probably not expecting such harsh findings and such definitive findings, literally calling this case uh, one of the most egregious, if not the most egregious pattern of conduct exhibited by any player in NFL history. So I think, you know, no matter which way you slice it, they're under a lot of public pressure right now um, to try to explain why they backed this guy without waiting at least to see what the findings would be. Lots of legal news out there, not just Watson. Now you've got some of the top players in the Live Tour suing the PGA over antitrust violations because the PGA is not allowing the Live players to play in their events. What do you think about the, the validity of this lawsuit, Amy, and what kind of chances do the Live players have in, in winning? Well, I think the validity of the lawsuit's pretty good. Uh, one of the major things is that the PGA players were independent contractors, not employees. So when you have a situation where you can't necessarily uh, expect exclusivity and then somebody goes to try to uh, play for a competing tour league, whatever tournament, and you exact punishment on that person for doing that punishment to the detriment of your own tour because it hurts the PGA. That's one of the hallmarks of anti-competitive behavior where you're trying to hurt your short-term gains to make long-term gains. And that's sort of what the, the lawsuit's going to examine is whether the behavior was predatory, whether it had an anti-competitive purpose, and, and really whether there's harm to these players in preventing them as independent contractors from going and participating in another tour. Amy Dash, Odyssey Legal Insider, uh, always great with us. Uh, we appreciate the time. We saw the lineup that you're on today. It's uh, quite, oh the, quite the gauntlet of stations. Busy so day. Thanks for squeezing hopefully us Hopefully we were early in and we didn't bore you too much. Oh, no. I love being on with you guys. Thank you so, <laughs> much. so much. Thank you, Amy. Thanks, Amy. Appreciate it. I'm my energy. I need like a Red Bull or something. <laughs> yeah, let's shotgun a couple Red Bulls. You'll yeah. be ready to go. Yeah. Thank Take you. care. There's Amy Dash. Uh, always great. League of Justice is the website. She's had great coverage there. And, of course, uh, from Odyssey, the, the legal analyst, and she's nice enough to join us from time to time. She seemed pretty optimistic on behalf of Live Tour that they've got a legitimate claim uh, against the PGA Tour based on the fact that they're independent contractors, not employees yeah. of the PGA Tour. So them wanting to play and getting getting blackballed from that tour uh, may may lead to something here for Liv and it's got their a, argument. It's got to help them that the, the other independent, uh, like USGA, USGA and all the independent majors are allowing them to participate. The Open Championship, whatever yeah. it is, the RNA also allowed them. Yeah, you're right. I'm pretty optimistic about the league's ability to withstand a lawsuit yeah. that's going to come unless they reach some sort of compromise with whatever this designee does. Certainly made it sound like Deshaun Watson has really no recourse. Whatever the league decides, they're because not going to be CBA. able to fight it. Uh, well, and that's assuming that we'll see this uh, new independent, quote-unquote, independent judge. We were skeptical about the independent judge prior independent. as well. This guy's really not independent. <laughs> I mean, because the PA has no, no say in the selection of this guy. They had a say in the selection it's of Sue just, Robinson. But like, like she said, it's, it, you don't want to 
if you're appointing an independent judge, you're not going to then have a conversation where you're expecting that judge to lean a certain way. But if you wanted a certain thing, just appoint yourself and and say it. But this guy, Peter Harvey, per Lindsey Jones of The Athletic, is currently on the NFL's Diversity Advisory Committee. And in 2017, he was on the committee that suspended Ezekiel Elliott under the personal conduct policy. He's got history with the league. It's not like Roger Goodell just went out and found this guy and met him and said, hey, we've chosen you to do this. They've got history to go. Sure. Uh, And he has a history of following the personal conduct policy, um, which was based on precedent. Sure. With Ezekiel Elliott. Coming up, Armando Salguero will join us. We, we say all that to say this isn't going away anytime soon. This is going to continue oh, uh, sure. with this, uh, this I'd be surprised precedent. if this guy doesn't lean the direction the NFL wants. Now, if he leans all the I'm way to indefinite, that's, that's, what I'm that's saying. the question. Are they sure. going to get fully what they want, or is it somewhere in the middle? Which is likely what the NFL was trying to negotiate with Watson to begin with on a settlement. Armando is next, and we'll talk football on the field on Outkick 360. Armando Salguero will join us in an hour. Outkick 360 rolls on across the Outkick network. IndyCar in town uh, here in Music City, Nashville, Tennessee, for the Music City Grand Prix, which uh, races on Sunday, but big events throughout the weekend, all week, uh, including right here at 6th and Peabody with Yeehaw Beer and Old Smoky Moonshine. IndyCar has gone above and beyond. I think we can all agree here. Above and beyond with uh, getting drivers in studio, chatting about the event, the sport. Uh, Not just with some random drivers, but like six-time champion Scott Dixon, who joins us in studio now. Scott, great to see you, man. Great to meet you. We appreciate your time. Yeah, thanks for having me. It's awesome to be here and, uh, you know, great to be back in Nashville, man. It's It's a fun town. Fourth in points right now. Close. Yeah. Right. Not much separates uh, top from uh, number four. How 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 many races can you make up? How many points can you make up in a race? Yeah, how tight is this? We're 38 back. Each race is about 52 points, depending on uh, bonuses and things like that. You can have pretty big swings. You know, uh, if, if you know the leader has has a bit of a rough one, you can make up 30 30 plus points in just one weekend. So it's it's about a one race kind of swing. You know, the only uh, different race is the Indy 500 is double points, where we had my worst finish of the year, uh, only getting 30 points, and, and uh, I think my teammate got 109 with all the bonuses. So right there is a deficit that you hope to, you know, not do. How much is it did. a cat and mouse thing when you know somebody like Will Power is trying to play it safe and maybe not racing to win, but racing to make sure that guys like you don't gain much on them in the bigger picture? Yeah, it's it's hard. You know, I've been uh, typically with our team, we, we kind of have a late charge and, and, you know, try and track these people down and, and win championships. Uh, 2020 was very different for me. I led it from the very first race and had uh, over a 100 point lead and it, and it ended up down to about 12 or 15. So it's weird because you, you always take the, the mindset of, ah, you know, always race the same. We always do the same things. But for whatever reason, you know, fate just kind of takes over and, and it becomes something else. And IndyCar is always known for coming down to the last race with with wild uh, championship outcomes. You know, a lot of other series have to create a segment to create another championship. You know, uh, you know to, to tighten up the field. But IndyCar is always extremely tight. What would a seventh championship mean to you? 
It'd be huge, you know. Uh, that's that's uh, tying the all-time great of, of AJ Foyt. You know, this year was big, uh, getting my 52nd career win yeah. uh, to to match Mario Andretti, uh, which you know he's a he's a massive hero of mine. Same with with AJ. You know, to to I'm a I'm a I'm a guy from New Zealand, man, very far away from here, small country of four or five million people, and to to be racing on you know the stage with these people, and and you know we're lucky enough to have people like Mario and AJ that still come to you know a good almost all the races throughout the season so you know to see your heroes talk to them and, and talk about their generation is is fantastic but uh it would it would be life-changing for me for your, sure your 50 second win so you as you mentioned you tied mario andretti he's tweeting compliments to you which has got to be awesome uh, aj foyt has 67 career wins i believe yeah um <laughs> How big of a gap is that to you? You're at 52 and you look up at 67. He might be safe on his little own <laughs> island over there. How <laughs> um, incredible is that number? It, it's it's uh, defining for sure. You know, I think, is it possible? You know, sure, anything's possible. Um, you know, I think with how the competition is right now in the, you know, the NTT IndyCar series, it's through the roof. So, you know, each win is, is, is tough. You know, if you have a good season or fighting for the championship, you'll probably win two or three. Uh, if you have an outstanding year, it might be four. You know, gone are the years where we would win, you know, six, seven races a season. So it's, uh, you know, it's it's not impossible if you get onto a streak and, and start, you know, running them down here. Um, that would be great. But, you know, he's, he's pretty safe at the moment. So I turned 40 recently, and everyone wants to tell you, you know, you hit 40 and things get different as you start to progress <laughs> past 40. You're 42, still obviously doing this at a very high level. Is anything different as your career wanes on? Have you seen anything diminish at all over the years in terms of your performance? Uh, I'd say, you know, not. I feel like I feel like we're we're lucky that we're in a generation too where you know you have a lot more tools. You know, um, uh, driving the car is the best thing you can do. You know, gone are the days from when I joined in early two thousands and you do almost sixty test days a year. We're now limited to just four. Uh, one out of season and three in. So, you know, that, that definitely alters the game. But, you know, I think with uh, a company that I've been with, uh, PitFit Training in, in Indianapolis for the last sort of 20 years, you know, the reaction tools that they have and, you know, light boards and, and different, you know, things and, you know, things that we use have, have definitely helped, you know, I think, uh, you know, the fine motor skills and, and reaction and all that kind of stuff. Um, I don't know. I think that, you know, the, the sport continues to evolve. I'd say the competition level is probably the biggest and, and, and toughest change throughout but uh yeah i don't know i i just feel like the days are shorter man as soon as you hit a point in your life the world just blows by especially with kids man it's it's like uh it was yesterday i had you know a one-year-old and, and she turned 13 you know a couple of weeks ago so it's, it's it's crazy we understand how many different cars can win in this series and you look at f1 all the hype they've gotten off off of the the netflix series that there's a very limited number of people and cars that can win there. If you took the 10th, and I don't know much about the, the differences in the regulations and, and all of that. If you took the 10th car from over there, dropped it in over here, uh, I don't know what kind of conditions would have to be met to make it equal, but, but what would happen? Uh, they're vastly different. You know, I think the easiest way to put it is, you know, an, an IndyCar budget maybe for two cars is, you know, $30 million. Um, Ferrari could be spending upwards of 400 to $500 million. So they make every piece of the car. You know, we, we're, we're, we're supplied a chassis. We're, you know, we have engine partners. That's the only difference. We're a Honda team. We, we compete against GM. Um, but Formula One make every single piece of their car. You know, sure, sure, they also have some some partnerships with with drive lines and things like that. But it's it's a very different tool. Um, but yeah, you're right. You know, you're you're literally looking at 
a possibility of three or four people that that may have the shot at winning on a good day uh you know in formula one whereas i'd say with ours you know it goes 10 15 deep but yeah the car performance is very different we race ovals you know we we race street courses road courses short track ovals super speedways it's just it's just a different formula. So you couldn't couldn't mix with any fair comparison. No, no, not really, not really. Those those cars are, are fast, man. They're they're extremely fast. Just because they're built specifically to the rules that you're constantly changing, but always pushing to you know the limit. Whereas ours is kind of a controlled environment because the chassis is built by one person. The en- engines are confined, but between you know by rules and certain things like that. Plus, you know they're a bit lighter, a bit more power. It makes it much more of a meritocracy, I feel like, in your sport when you make everything even to that level. Would you agree when you look at the difference between Formula One and, and, and IndyCar? Yeah, it's just, it just makes it more competitive. Yeah. You, know? you know, it's, it's uh, gone to the days where you had kind of big team ranks where, you know, Chip Ganassi, when I first joined them in 2002, you know, they, they, they financially were stronger. They, uh, you know, had better supply partners, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And, the, you know, the engineering side for us was, was always a big deal, which it still is. But, you know, to that level, you could adjust a lot of different things on the cars. So, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's, it's, it's different, but I think, you know, you, you legitimately have a right to win each weekend, no matter which team you're with. As long as you get it together, you do it right, and you have a smooth race, you know, there's, there's 15 plus cars that have a, a shot at winning uh, because they have the same equipment. You know, and watching Drive to Survive, I think, boy, this is a show that's entertaining and the sport is entertaining, but uh, it's driven by great accents and great personalities. (laughs) We had Will Power in yesterday. We have you in studio today. Two guys with great accents and great personalities. Will mentioned that there's something in the works around IndyCar. Uh, How much of a benefit could that be to your sport if there was a behind-the-scenes look series that maybe is produced similar to what we see to, to, to drive to survive with F1. Yeah, it's, uh, I would definitely follow Will. He's, uh, he's an interesting chap, man. And, uh, you know, nothing against him, but he is Australian, which is definitely a holdback <laughs> for, for, for most people, you know. But, it's definitely uh, a worse uh, accent also. Your accent's much yeah, better I than totally, that. Yeah, I totally agree, man. Uh, I think I'm a Hoosier now. I've, I've lived probably 20-plus <laughs> years in Indianapolis. but um, You have your own day there, don't you? Well, yeah, I did. A couple, uh, yeah, a couple of times, I yeah, think. You're, a couple of times, yeah. The, the, you're from Indy now. That's right. Yeah. That's right. I'm a Hoosier. So, but, yeah, you're right. You know, I think the exposure, I think anybody that gets the opportunity to, to tune in to IndyCar, they're, they're captivated by it. And going to, you know, the, the Indianapolis 500 is still the largest one-day sporting event in the world. You know, there's almost 400,000 people there. It's, it's uh, you know, I always say I've, I've been lucky enough to go to World Cups, you know, Olympic Games, um, and nothing has a touch on the Indianapolis 500. So it's uh, it's definitely a special environment. And, yeah, you know, I think every every sport has their interesting uh, kind of points, but IndyCar is definitely next level. And, and uh, you know, it would be great to, I think, have a show uh, similar to, to Drive to Survive. Scott Dixon uh, in studio with a six-time IndyCar champion, a uh, chance to go for a seventh. When is the last time you're wearing right now your PNC Bank? I'll give you your plugs. PNC Bank <laughs> and uh, Chip Ganassi Racing uh, Honda shirt. When's the last time you wore a shirt out in public without a logo on it? Uh, I'm, I'm pretty good like that. I, I, I like to be incognito. I like to kind of fly under the radar. So as soon as I leave here, maybe I'll... So you're, you're allowed I'll, to? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, you know, as long as it's not, uh, you know, an event or something that you need to go to. But, you know, tonight's going to be big. We, we've got the pit stop competition right on Broadway Street. Uh, later tonight, six cars. We'll be, we'll be shooting it out in the, the PNC Bank. Honda number nine will be, uh, will be in competition there tonight too. How much does your crew get paid? Can we can we get into this a little bit? Is it um, 
Uh, is it? Uh, I'm not looking at it from a, a comparable standpoint, pit crew to pit crew here. But um, I mean, they're your lifeblood. That's the separation for you, right? Like, you're how much are you competing to keep your guys from going somewhere else down pit lane? You see what I'm saying? Definitely. In 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 the last sort of five years, that's become a big deal for sure. Um, it you know, it. I think what a lot of people forget too is this is very much a team sport. It's never one person that that you know uh, wins the race or, or you know drives it across in sense that that always uh, you know finishes the deal. It is a team effort. You know, from the engineering side to what we do uh, the whole weekend with strategy and things like that to to the pit stops. You know, we. Add you know almost 20 gallons of fuel and change four tires in, in less than six you know six seven seconds. So it's uh, without them you 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 couldn't do it. Um, and I would say that you know Chip Ganassi Racing probably has the best in the business for sure. So it is hard you know it's it's hard to, to keep the best in one spot, especially if they're getting you know uh, pulled by by other teams. And and definitely in recent years that's been that's been uh, happening a lot more, which is uh, some sometimes frustrating. How do you find these guys? Uh, it's 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 tough, right? Because you're you're also it's not just being a specialist to do the pit stops. You know, some of the guys will be the gearbox mechanics. Some of them will be the the front and rear, you know, changes and you know engine changes and and all that kind of stuff. So they have to be obviously multi talented. Um, but it is also a very dangerous part of our sport too, is the pit stops. You know, the cars are coming in at sixty miles per hour. You know, you're, you're trying to gain tenths of a second and, and at any point, you know, things can go wrong, whether it's getting hit by another car and then you've got, you know, a 2,000 pound Indy car that's, that's going to take you out, you know. So there's, uh, there's a lot of risk to it um, and there's a lot of uh, extra time, especially with practice and all that kinds of things that go into it. So it's, it's yeah, it, it's hard to, to keep people as a whole, but I would guess the easiest answer to that is if you're winning then then they like to win man. <laughs> over the course of your your long career have you ever had a, a, a moment where you just knew right away maybe the first race maybe the second one, pretty quickly into it hey this guy my pit crew is terrific and we got to hold on to him and has there been a time along the way where you think this probably isn't going to work out you know a race or two into it where someone moves on pretty quickly uh, you see it, you know, and, and most of the time, uh, it, it's how you fit into the group, right? I mean, you, you know, a lot of these people, it's, it's a traveling circus, man. You know, you're spending a lot of time, I think pre COVID, you know, you were, you were sharing rooms always on weekends and things like that. You, you hear some pretty wild stories. And I think those wild stories are the ones that maybe upset and, and, uh, move somebody on. But, you know, I, f I feel like, you know, all of the people on our team are extremely professional as far as, you know, there to get the job done. Um, and, you know, I think now, you know, making sure that you're on the right teams and, and the teams that are winning, you know, I think that that kind of is precedent over anything. How many total? Team members? Yeah. I would say for us on a, on a four-car weekend, you know, probably 60 people that we travel with, and that's just on the team running side, you know, ex excluding, you know, kind of the sponsor, you know, PR people and, and all that kind of stuff as well. And then all the different events that you have to hit, right, during the week. Yeah, it's cool, though. What are like, your typical days off? Uh, so, you know, for the drivers, um, you know, you're typically done on a Sunday, you know, Monday will be kind of recoup day or, or light training and then you're, you're straight back into it. I typically train six days a week, you know, especially on an off week, it's two hours in the morning, three of those days will be two hours in the morning, two hours in the afternoon. The IndyCar is very physical. It's, uh, there's no power steering with the last formula really without it. So, you know, the G loads are five, six G and some of the configurations that we go to. And, and, uh, you know, the, the big change in the last couple of years has actually been the canopy that we now run. The air conditioning was pretty good at 200 miles an hour when you had the air blowing over you. And now it's that stagnant, right? So it's, uh, the, the heat inside the car has become a big, uh, a big challenge, I think for, for a lot of the drivers and, and, you know, these races are two hours. So, you know, your average heart rate is probably 150, 160 
or higher, uh, you know, for a two-hour period. It's pretty brutal. So break down those four hours of training for us. Uh, what 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 gets how what percentage of that in terms of what you do? Yeah, it changes. Um, so a lot of it will be high intensity. You know, a lot of it is is really interval training, um, and then circuits. You know, you'll have endless circuits that are an hour and a half to two hours, um, and that can you know be a range of you know whether it's just your typical ropes that you see people you know doing to the reaction light boards that we have. There's very different versions of that. There's you know so also reaction cells that we use in conjunction with. You know, a lot of plyometrics and different kinds of, uh, you know, training on that front uh, to even just getting out uh, at, at, you know, your, your track and field and getting on the track and, and running 400, you know, meters and, and doing those in repetition. Um, you know, so it, 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 it changes uh, throughout the season. Um, obviously, more so in the winter, too, it's quite weight related uh, because we don't get the intensity of doing all the testing anymore. A lot, of, a lot of it's difficult to train as well. Your neck, you know, trying to hold onto your neck in, in a 5G corner is, is almost impossible and, and you'll typically be, you know, done within 10 minutes. So to try and build up those neck muscles to last, you know, a two-hour race is, is, is brutal and takes a lot of time to actually train train your neck. So uh, for me, I love uh, triathlons as well. So I kick in a lot of, you know, biking, uh, running and swimming as well, which which helps with the, you know, the longer endurance siders. Sounds exhausting. Yeah. Do you enjoy um, roller coasters and do you jump out of planes? Do you bungee jump? Like, are you into all that? I've done all that. I've done all that. I, w- I would What's say. What's something you haven't done that you that's on your bucket list? I haven't done a solo uh, skydive. I've only you know done done the tandems, but I would say the the hardest thing was probably the bungee jump. That one, that one's, uh, you know, to take that that step yeah. off is is pretty tough. I was hoping somebody was just going to push me, but that didn't happen. <laughs> <laughs> what's what's something you definitely wouldn't do? Is there anything? Uh, I'm up for anything, man. I'm up for anything. <laughs> it makes sense. I'll try it. Yeah. I'll try it. I, I I have the feeling, pretty much, if you're going 250 miles per hour, yeah. you'll try anything. Yeah. You, like, would you go to space? Could if you if you said, hey, you could. You could jump on the, the SpaceX rocket. Would you go? Yeah, I think it'd be fun. I think it'd be fun. <laughs> that yeah, terrifies it, me. It's weird, though, because the racing thing, you know, there are people that are, you know, scared of heights or, you know, different things that when you race. But, it, you know, I've been doing or racing cars or go-karts since I was seven years old. So when I'm in the car, it feels normal. You know, it just feels like a, a Sunday drive. When did you get your last speeding ticket? <laughs> um... It's been a while, actually, and I don't want to jinx myself. I, you know, I need to touch some wood here, but I, 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 I think I have a record in Indianapolis. I think I got two speeding tickets within about 30 minutes. I feel like a, 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 a cop in Indianapolis would pull you over and say, just kind of laugh at the situation. Yeah, it can be tricky, that one. I actually did get a, uh, a, a, a ticket on my bike, too. I was riding and, and rolled through a, a stop sign and, and got, a, got a ticket. I was, and the, the first part was when I saw the, the policeman, I was like, are you kidding me? And that just set it in the wrong tone immediately. <laughs> <laughs> so there was no getting out of that one. But it's much harder to get out of these tickets these days because it's all electronic, man. As soon as they, they scan that driver's get license, you, you're toast. You, <laughs> you mentioned uh, you have a 13-year-old daughter. Yeah. yeah does, got, does she race? She she doesn't. Um, so two girls, ten and thirteen, and then we have got a little boy that's uh, two and a half. But um, Poppy is probably you know our, our oldest has probably talked about it the most and has done a lot of indoor go karting. But she's you know into you know dance and and horse riding and you know that as well. She hasn't bugged me too much, and I don't want to push it too much yeah. because I don't know. For me, as soon as I did it. It, I was relentless, man, until my parents caved, and and then I've done it ever since. So, I feel like you really got to have the desire and the push, and and to do it properly. But you know, we'll, we'll see, we'll see. When's the moment you remember that got you in it? Like you said, you were all in. 
what, so yeah, what, my, what hooked you? My my dad raced a lot of things, mostly club level, whether it was rally car to you know circuit racing and, and dirt track ovals and things like that. But uh, watching my cousins when I was seven years old at a, at a go kart track, and at the end of the day, you had a portion where you could have a go yourself. And I, and I remember getting in that cart. I still remember it clear as day, and just feeling like I was going so fast and couldn't stop smiling. And that 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 was the yeah. It was all over from that point on. Great socks. Well, now your second time all wins. Great socks, by the way. Oh, Uh, thank you. The checker flags. Checker flags. Terrific. Final thing, Indy 500 winner, do you you have like a little passcode or a card that allows you to go test there or do you get to drive the track anytime you want? If we came into town and you want to show us around, you live in Indy. Could you take us to the track and take us to Brickyard? I can. I can hook you up. Whatever you need, man. Whatever you need. It's 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 crazy. The Indy Five Hundred is it's it's um it's life changing. You know, uh, it's a funny story actually. When I went on the David Letterman show, because you normally always went on that after my my race winners two thousand eight. So it's a little while ago. We 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 were close this year, but didn't uh, came up a little bit short. But in New Zealand, I uh, got a lot of you know accolades and things like that. But the Prime Minister sent a thing uh, saying that you know I would get land for life, and I thought it was with a D, land. And I was like, wow, this is amazing. You know, I can pick any spot wherever I want to go. You know, in New Zealand, uh, but it was actually lamb. So I could have I could have sheep for life. But that was uh, that was it. <laughs> well, you need some land for the land. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Did you take so, him up on the offer and, I, and take the sheep? Yeah, I can get as many uh, lamb as, as as much lamb as you need. But uh, <laughs> yeah, I was hoping it was the land. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Scott Dixon has been our guest in studio. It's been a blast having yeah, you in great. here, man. Thank we appreciate you. you. Uh, and uh, best of luck. We'll be following this weekend. We, we did not go last year. If, you gotta well, come. Well, and uh, we had FOMO. I did at least, yeah, yeah. because we watched on TV. It was awesome <laughs> seeing the backdrop and stuff. But yeah, we're gonna try to make it down on Sunday because we didn't go last it's year. It's a crazy, crazy event and uh, a wild circuit. And you know, I can't thank everybody enough in Nashville for for what they do for us and in, in the IndyCar series. So hopefully, we put on a terrific show this weekend and hope yeah. to see you out there. Let's Good keep luck. it going annually. Cheers, thank, thank you, Scott. You. Thanks, guys. There's Scott Dixon, uh, IndyCar. And uh, champion, and also fourth in the points right now. But as you said, he can make it up fast. Uh, they'll be going fast around uh, downtown Music City this Sunday. We'll recap our chat with Scott and look forward to our conversation with Armando next on Outkick 360. Outkick 360 rolls on across the Outkick network. Our thanks to Scott Dixon and uh, the IndyCar team. They uh, they live up to the expectation. They said, hey, we're going to bring some guys by. We said, okay, cool. And they bring us Will Power and Scott Dixon. They brought some heavy hitters. They did not disappoint either, either one of those guys. Terrific conversations. That That was a lot of fun. I thought it was just like people would do if they got to sit down with a guy like that at the bar. Yeah. yeah, well, we were having a discussion about other famous New Zealanders during the break. We came up uh, with Flight of the Concords, the guys from that, uh, Taika Waititi, the director and writer Lost me. of the Thor movies. Lost me. Um, Peter Jackson, we had this debate. I feel he's like he's British, but he lives in New Zealand now. Like, he's adopted New Zealand as his home. I know all of his studios and everything because he was in New Zealand cutting up the Beatles documentary. That was on Disney Plus. Yeah, he's the director of that. During the pandemic. So he lives in New Zealand, and he's got a studio and production center in New Zealand, but I feel like he's from England originally. Maybe I'm wrong. So 
please tweet us at Outkick360 if you have like any other famous golfer. New Zealanders. He's from New Zealand. He's from New Zealand. There you go. Um, Israel Adesanya is from New Zealand. From Frank UFC. Nobolo. Frank Nobolo. Wow. One. There you go. Please tweet us. Famous New Zealanders. Who are we missing? There's probably some famous rugby player we're whiffing on. Sir, he's been knighted. Sir Peter Jackson. You think, uh, I, uh, I've seen, uh, we know uh, Joseph Newgarden. He's a little bit taller than these, been both these guys, but roughly these guys are about the same size, all of them. And they're right? not yes, small. They have the same build. Yeah. That yeah. workout regimen that he's talking about. I mean, his, for his heart rate, you were talking about your heart rate at your doctor's check. Yeah. Saying he's it's at 150 remarkable. for the duration of the race. I mean, that's, that's crazy. That's quite the workout if you're going to stay at that heart rate for that long. Um, he's what, 5'10, uh, Scott, yeah. roughly? I mean, he's. 5'10", 170 pounds, 165 pounds. Well, he's much lighter than a football player. But, yeah, you would think those guys a lot of times are small. They're not. Yeah. Very average size, but thin and fit, I would say, for both guys. Super. Coming up, our NFL team preview series continues, and we turn our attention to the AFC South, the Indianapolis Colts, and the Houston Texans. We'll look ahead to their regular season kickoff. That's all straight ahead on OutKick 360.